I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 35 this morning. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35, let me read it for us. And his mother, that is Jesus' mother, and his brothers Cain, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word now, we ask that by your spirit you would illumine our minds to understand your word, but also to delight in what we see. Help us by your spirit to treasure and love Christ all the more. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, some of you may be familiar with Adoniram Judson. He was a, a missionary to Burma in the 1800s, and he actually served as a missionary there for approximately 40 years. God used him and his wife, Anne, in incredible ways. They also suffered greatly. He lost three children and his wife as well in Burma. In fact, he lost his two-year-old and his wife within a six-month span of time. But when you read his story, you discover that this man was a man who was committed, surrendered to God's will. He fell in love with Anne and he desired to marry Anne. And Anne also desired to marry him. And so in light of that, he wrote a letter to his soon-to-be, Lord William, father-in-law. And this is what he wrote to his, to his future father-in-law in asking for his father-in-law's blessing. He said this, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means, from eternal woe and despair. What a powerful 
incredible letter to write to your possible future father-in-law. But I think what you see in this letter is, is a man who is determined to do the will of God. He is committed, surrendered to the will of God. Now, there's no doubt that there were many passages in Scripture that informed Judson on his radical decision to go to the mission field with Anne, knowing there would be major risk and sacrifice. For one, they would be leaving family. And they didn't live in a time where, where they had the phone or Skype to be able to reach out to their family. No, no, to go overseas to one of these other countries was was to say possibly goodbye forever to your family. In fact, it's known that many missionaries brought their caskets with them to these other countries. And I'm guessing that this passage that we're looking at this morning was one of those passages that informed Judson's decision. Now remember, we've been looking at just how polarizing Jesus is. There's so many opinions about him. Last week, we, we saw two accusations that, that were leveled against him. The scribes in verse 22 were, were claiming that Jesus's power to cast out demons actually came from the demonic. And of course, he responds to those accusations. But we also see in verse 20 and 21 that his family has opinions of him. As we read in verse 20 and 21, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So his own family thinks that Jesus has lost his mind. And here in verse 31 to 35, the scene actually returns to Jesus' family. In verse 31, we're told that Mary, Jesus' mother, and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. Now, it seems from the passage that, that Jesus wasn't aware of this, most likely because the crowd was so large that he, he probably wouldn't have seen them or even heard them. And that's what verse 32 seems to convey, where, where we read, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they, they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. You see, most likely they're continuing, his family is continuing to show concern for him with calling to him again. Now at this moment in the narrative, something shocking happens. It would have caught everyone by surprise. Jesus, after the crowd tells him that his family is looking for him, he asks a question to the crowd that might, at first glance, seem extremely confusing. As he says in verse 33, And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my mother and my brothers? Now you can just imagine the the crowd's facial expressions at this moment. What do you mean, who is your mother and brothers? You know who they are, and they're calling to you. And then we're told in verse 34 that he began looking about at those who were in the crowd, those who were sitting around him. 
And the, the idea here is that as he was looking around at those sitting in his close to him, the, the idea here is that, that he was looking at them with a searching look. It's almost as though he was penetrating into their hearts to see what was residing there. And then in amazement, looking at those around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Here are my mother and my brothers. This is my family, those who are seated around me, those who have chosen to follow me. And then in verse 35, he gives his explanation for his profound statement to those sitting around him. As he says, here are my mother and my brothers, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now you have to grasp how utterly shocking this would have been in a Jewish context. Now, this would be shocking even for our day, but, but even more so for back then. Biological ties were everything to the Jews. Why do you think genealogies were so important to them? Family and, and who you descended from were essential to your identity as a Jew. Now, there's, there's several things that, that we need to see in this passage. The first thing is this. With Jesus making this incredible statement, we need to grasp that he's not undermining the biological family. In Jesus' words, he, he wasn't rejecting his biological family, but he was seeking to make a theological point and the opportunity presented itself for him to do that. Remember, Jesus at the cross, when he was on the cross, looked upon his mother with affection, and, and he placed her into the care of John. So he's not out to destroy the biological family. He's not out to destroy his own biological family. But he is demonstrating that there's a superior family than one's biological family. And it demands greater allegiance than one's biological family. See, he's not undermining family. Rather, he's putting the biological family in its proper place. Which leads to my second point. There's a spiritual heavenly family that's greater more important than our earthly biological families. I think this is precisely what Jesus is getting at when he says, the one who does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, I have a biological family, but my truest family are those who are connected to me spiritually, not biologically. The, the biological family is subservient to the spiritual family. My earthly family, Jesus is saying, isn't as important as my heavenly family. In fact, I would go so far as to argue that, that biological family is meant to point to a deeper reality. 
of a spiritual family that is eternal and unbreakable. See, just as marriage is is meant to be a symbol of a superior reality, that is Christ and his church, so biological family is meant to be a symbol of a deeper reality, reality, namely the eternal spiritual family of God. Think about it this way. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had the greatest privilege and honor by being the biological mother of Jesus, the Son of God. She had a biological connection to Jesus that no other human has ever had. Yet the biological connection that Mary had with her son is nowhere as important or meaningful as the union she had with her son by faith. You know, it's interesting. There are, there are two ideas in our secular society that I would argue are, are two opposite extremes, yet I would say are both utterly false. On the one hand, our society in general is seeking to undermine the family. The home is breaking down. There's no real value in family anymore. We we hear this message all the time that, that individual autonomy trumps familial responsibility. Don't let family pressure or expectations from your family Keep, uh, don't let them to keep, keep you from pursuing your dreams. Remove that yoke of oppression, family expectations, and responsibilities. This idea is rampant in our culture. And if we were to really define what it is, it's, it's, we could reduce it in a sense to this. It's the, idol- it's this, it's the idolatry of self. You know, it's interesting, uh, Peter uh, Nyahoro, as we, I realize we have like four different Peters in our church, but after Inez was born, he was talking to me and he told me that in Kenyan culture, when you become a father or a mother, you are no longer addressed by your first name. Rather, you, you be, you, you're addressed by being the father of your child or being the mother of your child. So, for example... I would no longer be addressed as Peter, but rather the father of Inez. Gracie would be the mother of Inez. Now, I I find that just so beautiful. But it's interesting that, that that idea in our North American secular culture would be seen as offensive and oppressive. What do you mean you're going to reduce my identity to simply me having a child? What do you mean you're going to reduce my identity to, to being a father or being a mother? I'm so much more than that. I, I, I'm so much more than just my child. See, in one culture, it's seen as beautiful and valuable. and In another culture, it's, it's seen as oppressive. But there's also another idea in our culture that's completely opposite of this idea of individual aut- autonomy. And yet it also is false. And this idea is that family is everything. Family is the most important thing. There's nothing more important than family. You hear this all the time, especially even from celebrities. Secular people drink this up, but so do Christians. 
And I would argue that just as individual autonomy is an expression of idolatry, so this idea that family is everything or the most important is also a form of idolatry. It's placing a weight upon the biological family that it simply cannot bear. Listen, we need to hear this as Christians. Biological family isn't everything. It's not the most important thing. Christ is everything. And doing His will is everything. And being part of His family is the most important thing. You see, Jesus comes and He undermines the notion that individual autonomy is everything, but He also undermines the notion that commitment to biological family is everything. Instead, he demonstrates that living for God and being a part of God's family is the most important thing, regardless of how one's family responds. I I believe I've probably shared this story before, but I remember when I was, I think, in grade 10, I was talking with my father, and my dad said to me, Peter, I'm your father, and and you're called to obey and honor me. And I said, yeah, of course. And and he said, but I'm not your Lord. I'm not your Lord. And if there's ever a time in your life where Jesus calls you to do something, and I, as your father, try to convince you otherwise, I plead with you that you would listen to the voice of your Lord rather than the voice of your father. You see, I realize that some are prone to think that if we place Christ and his spiritual family as more important than our earthly families, then won't this lead to us devaluing our families? Well, I would argue no, If what we mean by devaluing our earthly families is we're simply not going to give it the value that it doesn't deserve. We want to give it the value that it deserves. In other words, we want to put our biological families in its proper place. And if we do that, I actually think our commitment to our families will be greater than if we put so much weight upon our families. C.S. Lewis, I think, articulated this so so well when he he spoke about um, loving your earthly dearest in contrast to, to loving God, where he says this, To love you as I should, that is, his bride, I must worship God as creator. Interesting. To love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. In other words, If I love God more than my wife and even more than my child, I will then actually 
love my wife and my child more than if I love them more than God. I think this principle applies not just to marriage, but also to family. You see, if, if family becomes everything in your life, what happens when family fails you? Your life is shattered. See, for some of us, we've experienced growing up in a broken family. Kids, some of you have experienced hurt from your biological family. Maybe one of your parents has hurt you, and, and more than once. But Jesus tells us that even though your earthly family can break down, you can have a spiritual family. Where Jesus is your older brother, and God is your father, and neither of them will ever fail you. Neither of them will, will lack interest in you. Neither of them will be impatient with you and lose their cool. Neither of them will ignore you. Neither of them will wrong you, but they will love you with an infinite love. And not only that, when you, when you join the spiritual family of Jesus, you get a multitude of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. But we need to see this. You're not biologically born into this spiritual family. You enter into God's family by trusting in Jesus and living for him. Which leads to my third and final point. The requirement of, Jesus, of being Jesus' brother, sister, mother is doing the will of God. That's the requirement. That's precisely what Jesus says. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now there's several things we need to see here. First, those who are a part of the spiritual family of God is determined by those who do God's will. Those who are part of the spiritual family of God is determined by those who do God's will. There's no way around that. Now, I realize some of you might object and say, well, isn't that working for your salvation? Isn't that a, a form of works righteousness? Well, the answer is no for two reasons. For one, we have to think about what is the will of God. It's vast. We can't even touch the surface of all that is God's will. But it's interesting that in John 6, 27 to 29, Jesus describes the work that we are supposed to do for eternal life. Did you hear that? The work that we're supposed to do for eternal life. And this is what he says in verse 27 and 29. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So we are to work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they, that is the crowd, said to him, What must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So you must work for the you must work for the food that leads to eternal life. What's that work? That work is that you believe in him, the one whom God has sent. So to do the work of God, to do the will of God, is to believe in Jesus. So when Jesus states, 
those who do the will of God are my brother, sister, and mother, it at least begins with believing in him as the one whom God has sent. So friend, if, if you're watching this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, but, but you, you seem to have a desire to do the will of God, then what you must do first above everything else is believe upon Jesus for your salvation. For that is the will of God, that you would believe in his son. Secondly, to do the will of God here in this passage is the authentication that you're a part of Jesus' family. Doing the will of God authenticates you as Jesus' brother or sister. You see, what is it that revealed or authenticated that Jesus was in actual fact the Son of God? Was it merely because he said he was? No, no. Jesus demonstrated that he was the Son of God because he faithfully did the will of his Father. In other words, it was his obedience to the Father's will that verified his sonship. His obedience to the Father's will validated his claim to sonship. And if Jesus was validated based upon his obedience as a son, would it not also be true of his followers? In other words, those who claim to be followers of Christ and therefore sons and daughters of God by adoption must, they must do the will of God or else they are frauds. Just as if Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, yet chose not to do the will of the Father, he would not be the Son. I mean, isn't this precisely what, what Jesus speaks to in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who professes, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, who pronounces with their mouth, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus is saying here that, that your profession of faith, Lord, Lord, means nothing if it's not verified or confirmed by a life devoted to the will of God. You can't claim to have Jesus if you don't care to live for the will of God. Even the Apostle Paul taught this. In Acts 26, uh, 19 to 20, Paul is, is on trial before King Agrippa, and he, he basically lays out his whole story to King Agrippa. And it's interesting what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says this, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, here it is, that they should repent and turn to God, and then catch this, performing deeds 
in keeping with their repentance. In other words, doing, seeking the will of God. You see, even the Apostle Paul, who, who you could argue is the, the advocate, so to speak, for, for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, articulates here that one who is saved by repentance and faith must bear fruit that aligns or verifies one's repentance and faith. This is why someone who prays the sinner's prayer or even is baptized doesn't mean that they are actually a part of Jesus' spiritual family. It is he or she who does the will of God that Jesus will affirm as brothers and sisters and mothers. So here's the question for us this morning. Does the way you live verify, confirm, that you are seeking to live a life according to God's will revealed in his word? Or does your life reveal that you merely give mouth service to Jesus? You may deceive many, but you will not deceive Jesus. He knows who are committed to his Father's will. And friend, we're being invited to the greatest honor in the universe. We are being invited to be sons and daughters of the living God, to participate in the divine family of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this can only be if we embrace Jesus and give ourselves joyfully to the will of God. There is no greater honor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these incredible words that even though we were once enemies of you because of our sin, you by your grace, through the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, have adopted us as sons and daughters of God. And Father, I pray that you would help us in our sonship, that in our sonship that we would truly seek to do the will of God. And Lord, I pray for anyone who is watching that they would get serious with you this morning, that if they examine their life and they realize they're really not living for your will in any way, shape, or form, that they would repent of their sins and that they would trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, for that is your will. Do your work, O God. Accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.